Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm fine. But you know what? You know, you thought I'd jump the gun on Christmas a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I think I, yeah, you did ask, but OK, yes, go on. I, but I, now... The paper no, is now. full of it. Yep. And now it's official. You're going to tell us what's in the paper and how Christmassy it is, etc. It's about to be December. So, yes, now we've got a bumper issue actually for the podcast and in the paper. This week's issue is Christmas books. So, it's got lots of fun stuff in. It's got the evolution of Godzilla, it's got the history of the pocket calculator. It's got a roundup of children's books, um, including Catherine Rundle, who we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, it's got a very crucial piece on what it means to come from Yorkshire. Which I Did you write with. that? No, I didn't. No, no. I read it with very close attention. It's a very good piece. And then the smaller... What does it mean to come from Yorkshire? Well, I can't tell you that, Alex, because then it'll ruin it. You have to go oh, read, read the piece. It. Okay, okay. Is this deliberately this week? Because wasn't Lancashire Day this week? Was it? No, I don't know if that's on purpose, but if it is, it's brilliant. <laughs> well, there you are. There's one very good aside in the piece when he just says he's not being um, very uh, sort of tub thumping about it. But at one point he says, who's written it? This it's Richard Smith with a Y, who I think we've talked to before. We have. And he just says at one point, it's something like this would be a good book for people from Yorkshire and other worse places. He just puts it in as an aside. It's beautiful. Oh my goodness. Do you know, I, I do know somebody from Yorkshire and their refrain is you can't beat Yorkshire. We've even got our own dog. Well, but yeah, but loads of places have got their own dog. Oh, I suppose so. Anyway, anyway, as well as Yorkshire, there's this smaller and less important matter of the purpose of the universe. So that's sorted out this week in the TLS. Uh, we've also got a letter from a really wonderful, very versatile, very distinguished actor on the letters page. Just saying. Oh, and you're not going to say who it I'm is. I'm absolutely are you? not going to say who it is. No. You'll have um, to read the paper. You will. You have to listeners. subscribe to the TLS, dear listeners, and then get this bumper issue with all its wonderful stuff in it. Well, that sounds extraordinary, full of stuff, as is this podcast. So we're actually going to hurry on because this week 
Toby Lichtig and I got to talk to the newest booker on the block, Paul Lynch, whose novel Profit Song has just won this year's prize. And we have Emily Copley on the fascination of Virginia Woolf's diaries. But first, Paul Lynch's fifth novel, Profit Song, lays out a stark proposition. A man detained by the state on charges unelaborated and unfounded, a woman desperately trying to keep her four children and her elderly father safe from harm as their country slides into authoritarianism. A city divided, watchful and terrified. This is the Dublin of Lynch's imagination, but the scenario it describes is far from unimaginable. It's happened before, it's happening now, and will doubtless happen in the future. It was the depth of this vision that saw Lynch this week carrying off the Booker Prize, and we're delighted that he was able to join me and Toby Lishtig. Paul, so many congratulations. You gave an extremely powerful speech when you collected the award, telling people that the book had been really, really hard to write. I mean, I can imagine why it was, but tell us in your own words, why was it and how did it start for you, Prophet Song? Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody willingly goes into this universe. And yet that's the sort of world that I'm kind of drawn to as a writer. I think that I have a responsibility to the reader, too, that even though I found this book due to challenging to write, that I must take the hand of the reader as Virgil does to Dante. And, and I have a responsibility for them, too, that through poetry, and perhaps maybe some smidgen of grace that I can take them into this world and, and allow them to to sort of to stare at the abyss without falling in. And that's the thing about why it was hard to write the book um, is because I had to go to places that were really challenging for me. The penultimate chapter of the book, I couldn't even write it for months. It was looming before me. I knew what I had to do. I didn't know how to do it. I was petrified of how I was going to do it what it would do to the reader if I had the the technique, the ability, the grace to pull it off without, you know, as they say, losing the reader. But the key thing was the sense of truth that I had to follow, that that the book has a very distinct line of truth. And I saw the truth in the book as, as, as a series of equations, this because of this, because of this, because of this, all the way to the last line of the book in which it's the QED, so to speak. And so I also had some personal challenges. I mean, it was COVID for everybody for a period of time while I was writing the book. I had a son born just literally just before I started writing the book. I had long COVID for the best part of a year, which was chronic fatigue and brain fog and waves would come and it would go. And so it was just a challenge and, and financially challenging as well because COVID was a wrecking ball for so many writers. I look back now and I kind of recognize that the period of my life when I wrote this book wasn't a happy one. And that's not reflected in the book. Like the book is, is a separate thing, but I suppose we sort of disappear into the writing a lot. But when I look back at that period of my life, it was a hard time, you know, and, yeah. and that's, that's the calling. I think you just have to, you just have to turn up and do the work and, you know, you do what's required of you, what the story is asking. And, you know, that's, that's my job. That's, that's my calling, I think. I mean, that final part of it was relentless. And, well, you did lose this reader, and I, I can't imagine losing readers because you're just sucked into it. And I wonder, you say it kind of built up before you. How did it come out of you when you finally could write it? 
it came out of me in two ways. One, I would say it just it it came out in this sort of flood because I had sort of figured out how to do it. I had I actually wrote an essay about this a couple of years ago during lockdown. I had a dream that just gave me the coordinates for that final section of the book and also gave me the coordinates for the essay to write about it because I was I had been commissioned to write something and didn't know what to write. It was a public lecture that I had to give for the stinging fly. And so it came out of me in a torrent, but 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 the reason it had that that it had the flow that it had was the structure of the language had been so carefully built up. Those cadences, those long passages, those long sentences, that sense of inevitability that's built into the language, all that was sort of there as a channel. And it was built to take the flood when it came. And that's what happened. There is this just this sense of things unfolding at this torrid pace which I think I think the kind of the writing really really reflects was did you set out to write like that or did you just find that happen naturally yeah I mean writing is a deeply intuitive act and you, you sort of you're sort of standing in the river as it's passing through you and you're you're trying to steer it in some way shape or form and that's by doing that you give the novel its form and you find the weave and part of the part of that weave that you put together you know, you ask yourself questions about the meaning of the text, the meaning at the sort of secret center of the book, and the form must, must answer to that. And so when I make decisions about how, you know, you mentioned the paragraphs, and I make decisions like that, they sort of often come upon me intuitively because I realize that it's speaking towards the meaning of the book. And I think it's very important. I think this is important because, you know, there's a lot of remodernism going on in fiction. And I do notice that it's the case sometimes that there there's no justification for certain things that have been taken out. I, I often, I pay attention to that and I'll think about it and I go, oh, I can't quite see a reason for this. So this is just perhaps pretentiousness. But in my own case, everything has a justification, um, at least for me anyway. And, you know, it became clear to me that Ailish just has nowhere to turn in this book, that she's just carried onwards endlessly in this sort of this rush of events but it also has a sort of great metaphysical blindness to it like she's in you could consider it a labyrinth or you know there's a sense of of greek tragedy at, at play in my own thinking that how how we're constantly beset by you know life and we have to make choices and we act with certainty but we we just reap a crop of the unforeseen and I'm really interested in this, how, how life is blind to us. And, and yet we're just so certain. We're so damn certain all the time. And Ailish is trying to make all these decisions, but she's straightjacketed at the same time. And so I want the reader to feel that. I want them to completely feel that sense of claustrophobia and all the undertow that's going on in the text. You've just unlocked something in the novel for me with that mention of Greek tragedy, because... The thing that I found so incredibly strong about the book was its sort of realism, its descriptive realism, and, and some some of that in the mundane detail of life in the household, which, of course, is, you know, partly familiar to us from things like lockdown. And then this sense of enormous choices being made. And she is such a complex character. and She doesn't want her husband to fall foul of the authorities, but then she urges him to stand with his conscience. And then she has this huge survival instinct, but sometimes we think she's denying what's going on, denying what's 
happening. I was really interested in you making her rather than her husband, Larry, the central point of view in the novel. Yeah. You know, if you take a book like The Iliad, which is full of male heroics and, you know, it's full of the, the foreground is the event and you turn it inside out and you shake it. Well, you're going to be left with the life, the humdrum, the people in the background who are trying to make sense of the enormity of the events that they're being impacted by. You maybe arrive at Eilish and, and I will say Larry too. I mean, he could have been a part of this book. He was a part of this book until he was arrested. But the book is deeply interested in the humdrum. You know, there's a line in it, the life is lived in the humdrum and our happiness is found in the humdrum. And and that's really important to me um, that, that, you know, people keep calling this book dystopian. And I'm like, really? Do you think it is? Because I'm just really not so sure about that. And then when you deepen realism to such a, a degree as I do in this book, I, I think that the, the dystopian sort of falls away to a certain extent. I mean, I would throw in just as an aside here that anything that, that seems to be speculative cannot be speculative if it's happening somewhere in the world right now. It was really important for me to enter into the feeling of events, the hidden life of, of unrecorded acts, that, that sense of the heartbeat of the moment. And that's where life is. And that's where you can truly connect the reader to what's unfolding. And at which point it ceases to be something that might be like journalism and it becomes truly fiction. I completely see what you're saying about dystopia because Toby, I don't know about you, I didn't read it as dystopian or speculative at all. The whole point is that absolutely everything that happens in this book has happened. And, you know, as Paul said, is probably happening somewhere, someplace. It reminds me a bit of a, a book that's also regularly called Dystopia, The Handmaid's Tale, which is a very, very different book. But Margaret Atwood said of it, the point of this book is that there's nothing in this book has not happened at some point in time. And in a similar way, this is a book about what happens when populism emerges and fascism descends on a state and when war tears people apart. I mean, this is, this is how people react. This is what people have to go through. And one of the things that really struck me as I was finishing it, in many ways, this is a book about parenting, I thought. This is a book about parenting in extreme conditions. And Eilish's relationship with her four children, all at different stages of their childhood, is so beautifully done and described and, and, and thought through. And I, I think that's one of, the, one of the most powerful things about it for me. Is, is, is that something you were very conscious of, Paul? Or maybe, maybe that's the wrong question because, you, you know. Yeah, I'm very interested in how we are sort of metamorphically changed by the events that we live through. And I am felt it necessary to pay great attention to the children in the book and how the disappearance of their father affects them all differently to how those changes sort of manifest throughout the story. And those changes, you know, they're horrific changes in this, for each of them in all different kinds of ways. You know, the, the, the impact on, on their psychology is, as innocence is, is enormous. And I'm interested in that, you know, and for Bailey becomes really changed and hardened and his relationship with his mother sours enormously because she chooses not to tell him that his father has been disappeared. She lies about it. And that decision really sets in shame a sequence of events between them that's very unfortunate molly begins to withdraw into herself she she just processes it in, in a way that alienates her mother and Elish doesn't know how to reach her anymore and then mark the eldest well he 
he just becomes radicalized as what this is what happens. He becomes the next radicalized generation and he gets swallowed by it. And meantime, then, you know, those scenes where they're living through airstrikes and Elish recognizes what's going into the body of her infant child, what's been stored for the future, that there's this transmission of fear, of anxiety, of terror that's, that's traveling into this child through her deep connection with him, that he will never truly understand if he survives what he has lived through, but he will carry it in his body for the rest of his days. And, and he will carry that trauma. He will, it will emerge in his adulthood. It will manifest in, in his behavior in ways that he doesn't understand. And so the legacies of what occurs in this book are, they become intergenerational trauma. We see it at a point of such extremeness as society in this case in Dublin, in a city that's very recognizable to lots of us, but also totally unreal. And I was thinking of that blend of a place that we know and the complete unreality. And it struck me that I know you've done events and so forth with Sebastian Barry, whose novel Old God's Time was long listed alongside Prophet Song. And it struck me that his book starts with policeman at the door and it blends reality and unreality and I wondered whether you felt that that had a particular resonance in Irish culture because I I kind of found this book to be both Irish and not Irish if that makes any sense yeah I mean the interesting thing about our relationship with with the police in Ireland is that it's generally a very benign one I mean the Gardaí have have been largely unarmed throughout their history you sort of imagine when the guards call to your door that you'll be on a first name basis with them. And it's, and it's actually there in, the, in that chat with Eilish, that initial chat where he's he's just kind of just very jovial and he's saying, oh, we'll try and warm ourselves up in the heat of the car. And she's saying, call me Eilish. And it's that sort of, that's kind of how it is until it's not. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what Kool-Aid, myself and Sebastian are both supping on, um, to be honest with you, but Maybe we're just channeling something uh, from the same place. You know, in this book, the fact that we have the secret police now, that we have the GNSB, is in itself, again, something that we just don't recognize. You know, the characters say, well, we don't have the secret police in Ireland. It's something we've never had until now, which, again, is that sort of just that sense of that reality has, has suddenly altered by a, by a degree, a colder degree than we'd expected. And that's the way this book moves. It's the real that that seems to be the real, but there's something creeping into it. And it's there in the early on that something has come into the house, something formless and yet felt. Is it like a shadow or something? And it just starts to grow and grow and grow, but it's almost invisible. It's not, it's not there until it's so enormous that it becomes what it is. I was also interested in that idea of the, the formlessness of the threat. This is a, a kind of people's eye view. As yeah. you say, the authorities who we see, we only see in that kind of human interaction with a guard who possibly doesn't want to, probably doesn't want to be doing what he or she is doing. We never see the politicians. We never know really any details of the regime. And it has that, that kind of timelessness and also that, that sort of metaphorical sense to it that kind of plane is going on. Yes. I give the book to some early readers, some people I really trust. And one of them, he was a very sharp reader, but 
he said, oh, he says, I think you've missed a trick here. He says, you haven't you haven't detailed the politics. There's an opportunity here to dial in the politics because, the, you know, then you can make a sort of a statement about that. And I thought you're missing the point. And I didn't say it, but I thought it. you're truly missing the point, because if I had dialed in the politics, then the book would become about that politics rather than what it actually is about. And so it's been my observation that sort of one in 10 critics, I don't read the reviews, but I'm getting I get the tenor of them from my team. And, you know, I think one in 10 seem to truly miss the point. And that's fine. That's how it goes. I can't tell people how to read a book. Um, but if I had dialed in the politics, it would be about the politics. It would be about a specific thing. If I had set the book in another country that wasn't in Ireland, it would be about that specific condition. Whereas I'm interested in the timelessness of the outcome, not the methodology. The, the methodology changes the politics. There are always different formulations, but the outcome is always the same. And so you choose your lenses. And the lens that I put choose to foreground in this book is the personal cost of events. The way you get the backlash against the regime as well. So it's at some point, sort of towards the midpoint and, and going onwards in the book, there is this sort of this rebel army that forms and, and starts to push the regime back. But we don't get any, you know, hope about them through the central character Eilish either. The, these aren't the answer either. And I think what you're saying about the politics makes great sense to me because if you were to put actual politics in it, you'd start inevitably rooting for one side or the other or trying to. Precisely. And, and, I, and I think that was one of the wonderful things about it. The, the bleakness of this book is you get a sense once a country descends into this sort of tyranny, what, what replaces it is not necessarily going to be any better. And that's, that, that seems to be the hole that you know, so many places get themselves into. And anyway, I, anyway, I thought that, that kind of timelessness was done really beautifully. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, when you don't detail whether the book is set in the future or a counterfactual present, you're allowing yourself some mythic space to enter the novel. And I'm interested. I've always been in all my novels. I've come, I've come as close to the mythic as I can, because the closer you get, the more freight your story can carry. And I'm interested in that sense of timelessness. I'm interested in the, in the sort of articulations of what it is that makes us human beings across time, the sort of eternal truths that are drilling down. And, you know, my early novels were, historical fiction which is a term i think is completely meaningless but I, I use the past as a past as a way to sort of drown out the noise of the present so they, it allowed me to create space to chase after these things and with beyond the sea my fourth book it allowed me i figured out a way to pivot out of that to chase these things within a more contemporary setting and that's i mean the prophet song you know I, i'm i seem to have sort of caught something of tenor of the moment in the book. And that's, that wasn't my goal. I'm chasing for the sort of connections that allows this book to sit in a place where it's speaking to the past, the future, and the present all at once. And, and I've met people from, from different conflicts, you know, Ukraine and Palestine, Gaza, in the last, literally this week. And they've, they've said to me, your book speaks to my country precisely. And I, I, I think that there's a kind of miracle in that for me as a writer sitting in Dublin, you know, in my house in Dublin that I'm somehow managing to connect with people. But that goes back to the universalities that I'm chasing, the sort of, that sort of just trying to come up as close as possible to, to, to myth. That reminds me of something that Alex said to me um, in an email yesterday, that it that actually this book reminded her of um, a novel by a Ukrainian novelist called Serhii Jadan called The Orphanage, which Alex and I have both, we were judging a literary award when it won the award. I felt exactly the same way, Alex. 
that it spoke to that conflict like it speaks to lots of other conflicts. And I thought that was a very interesting point you made. One of the questions that it asks, which is the question, you know, that, that people have asked themselves throughout history in different contexts and ways over and over again is, when do you leave? How do you leave? Should you leave? What will happen if you don't leave? And what, in a way, does leaving mean? That seems to be one of the engines that is really powering us through the book. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Um, it's something I've always been interested in because we, we, you know, we watch the TV and we say, oh, but Jesus, I would have got out. I, I would have got out, you know, when, when we look back on the Holocaust, I, I would have left. I would have known when to go. Really? I'm not so sure. With this book, that was one of the big questions. The sort of, again, it goes back to blindness, human blindness, philosophical blindness. How How do you know? But even again, there's another layer to that. Anya in the book is phoning Eilish and she's saying, she tells her, you need to leave. It's time. History is a silent record of those who did not know when to leave. And Eilish responds back, effectively saying, that's easy for you to say. I'm enmeshed in my life. My kids, my daughter plays hockey. What about dad? You know, her father who's got dementia. What if he falls and breaks a hip? What then? You know, and Larry, of course, who's been disappeared. How can she leave when her husband has been disappeared? So she's, this is the thing that I realized writing the book is that she's so completely entangled, enmeshed in relationships, in, in, in the complexity of modern life that we all, we all are dealing with, that nobody willingly leaves that. It has to be taken away from you before you can leave. And even then you're shunted. And that's what I learned writing this book, that our relationships to the place, to family, to people are actually what define us. And that's why she always has these moments of being throughout the book where she's lost in the now. But very often she's she's fine. You know, she's she's reflecting always on on memory and meaning and people that she's related to, because that's actually what we are. Paul, I have to ask you this with the complete caveat that this is just something that happened in the world, you know, separate to your book. But, you know, a week ago, we saw violence on the streets of Dublin and we saw a small but very determined right-wing group wanting to create pain and mayhem and fear. And I wonder how you felt about that in relation to your your own work i live in dublin it's my town it's my city and this is in dublin and i was shocked when when i saw it you know and one of my friends he was a newspaper editor until recently and he followed the action on his bicycle and he took some took a really extraordinary photograph of a double decker a dublin bus you know a bus that i'm on regularly you know just in complete flames against the darkness. And I was, like everybody else, I was astonished. I was gutted. But at the same time, the writer was not surprised. And this is the thing. I mean, these energies are always there. And these energies are growing. And, you know, I've been observing for, for many years, as we all have, what I call openly an unraveling. Because things there are things being tolerated now that would have been intolerable 15, 20 years ago in politics, even 10 years ago, perhaps. And one plays a game of join the dots. You know, if you take sort of the opening chapter of Prophet Song and you say, let's join the dots. What does it take to get 
to the opening of the chapter? That's a question for, for the readers, perhaps, of this book. But I think it's important to say that Prophet Song is a work of fiction. I, I didn't set out to make a claim, a statement of prophecy about Ireland in particular, that what I was chasing, I, you know, always, as I said, was timelessness, the universality. And there was a quote that I wanted to use from Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing as an epigraph. And he unfortunately was dying at the time and he passed away and we couldn't get permission in time for publication. And it was really key to what I was aiming at. And I'll mangle it slightly, but it, he said the task of the narrator is a difficult one. He appears to be required to choose his tale from among the many that are possible. But of course, that is not the case. The task is rather to make many of the one. Paul, it's an amazing novel. We are delighted for you. And thank you so much for coming on the TLS podcast to talk to us about it. Ah, it's a great pleasure. The TLS is, is a tremendous institution and it's wonderful for me to be here with you both. Thank you so much for being attentive and kind readers. Thanks, Paul. A great pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on the show... Emily Copley leafs through Virginia Woolf's diaries. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. This week, we look at a story of the diaries of an extraordinary woman, lost in wartime, then rediscovered and brought to light by another extraordinary woman. And it's not just a gripping yarn, it's of literary and historical importance, since the diaries are by Virginia Woolf, and it was one of the Monuments men, who was in fact a woman, who rescued them. Emily Copley, who writes on Virginia Woolf, has told this story and read the reissued diaries for us in the TLS this week. And we're really delighted that she can join us today. Emily, many thanks for talking to us. Yes, thank you for having me. So this story, which I've told very briefly and not very well, it's got many layers, hasn't it? We should start unearthing them. So when did Virginia Woolf write the diaries and how were they lost? Woolf kept diaries before her marriage to Leonard Woolf that were um, not regular, sort of off and on and taking various forms. And then in she married Leonard Wolf in 1912. And then in 1915, she started keeping a regular diary. We don't know specifically why. And she kept this until her death in March 1941, with a quite long break during a period of severe uh, mental illness between 1915 and 1917. But aside from that long gap, there is this continuous record um, of her extraordinary life and thinking, and it amounts to 30 notebooks, that is from 1915 to the end of her life, um, is 30 notebooks, and many of these notebooks Virginia Woolf salvaged from her London home 
after it had been bombed uh, early in the war. And she brought the notebooks to her country house, Monk's house in Sussex. And after her death, Leonard edited about one fifth uh, as a selection published as a writer's diary. This was in 53. And then many years later, after many of the uh, principal people whom uh, Wolf wrote about had died, it was decided that the whole thing should be published. And uh, that's where Anne Olivier Bell took on the job. I could say more about that, but already there's, there's <laughs> well, a structure for you. No, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, we'll come to what the diaries were about and what they were for. But Anne Olivier Bell was also Major Popham, wasn't she? <laughs> She was. She was. Which sounds like an Evelyn War novel. <laughs> yeah, it does. Oh, I was reading it, and I reading your piece, which is so brilliant at contextualizing the whole thing and giving you this wonderful flavor of what Wolf's writing in her diaries was like. But the first time I got to Major Popham, I thought, well, who's who's he? <laughs> because she just sounds like a character from a novel. Yeah, she and Olivia Bell wrote. Um a quite a wonderful booklet. It's called Editing Virginia Woolf's Diary. Um, she wrote this, it was published about 10 years after the full diary was published. And in and she, she sort of sets out how she took on this project, what it entailed, the challenges, the reception. Um, and she's at great pains to make clear why she was a good candidate uh, to take on this project. She really does not want to be accused of nepotism because she was married to Quentin Bell, the nephew of Virginia Woolf, uh, that is Vanessa Bell's son, the surviving son. Um, and so in this pamphlet, and you know, one could learn elsewhere as well, she gives us her credentials. She was a trained art historian. She was extremely meticulous as a scholar. She had tremendous expertise in sorting artwork, including stolen artwork. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Right after the war, um, she mounted exhibitions. She accompanied artworks on journeys to various uh, shows. She had a scholarly and art historical training that strongly aided her in the project. So she does seem to have been the perfect person. And actually the, the nepotism in this case, you'd have thought would be helpful because she would know something of what the family was like and how they operated. Exactly. And she says that as well. She says, you know, I know these people. They were my friends. They're my family. I know the social world. I know the history. I know, I understand their humor. It is a great boon, in fact, yes, to, that she is connected. Mm. So now they've been reissued again, haven't they? Complete with the original notes with forwards yes. by contemporary writers. Is that right? That's right, yes. Right. And do the contemporary writers sort of say anything new about it? or There are lovely forwards that are really appreciations for the given volume 
you know, there are five volumes, each forward um, sort of champions its volume. What is unique about this time in Wolf's life or about the particular experiments of this, the, this diary in this volume? Adam Phillips focuses uh, on psychoanalysis a bit. Um, you know, each, each writer focuses on what draws them. They call our attention. Each forward calls our attention to particularly salient quotes or, or tangles of that particular volume, I would say. I was really interested to see that Margot Jefferson had written one of the introductions or the introduction for one of the, the volumes because she is such an extraordinarily interesting memoirist herself, Jefferson, because she sort of manages to bring in so much social and political detail but understand this idea of trying to write the self and write the body and it seems to kind of go to the, that just seems like a sort of marriage made in heaven in a way. It is, and she she has arguably the hardest task among the five uh, writers of forwards because she um, she makes a case for the diary when Wolf published writing is not so well known the early the early thirties the diary of the early thirties so this is Wolf's uh, novel The Waves was published in thirty one then Wolf is at work on a, a famous essay a letter to a young poet and then. After that, 33, 34, 30, not much well-known is published. And Wolf is working on two massive projects, well, one massive project that results in two books, Three Guineas and The Years. But for several years, we, there's nothing famous that Wolf is publishing. So Margot Jefferson has to defend why should we be interested in a diary of, of years that are not artistically so famous? And she does an excellent job for showing, you know, a diary is, revealing not only of the most dramatic moments, but also, she, this is her phrase, I quote it in my review, a diary is a record also of, quote, the states between the pinnacle and the chasm, um, just sort of everyday life, daily challenges, what happens between the drama, um, the dramatic moments. So I, I thought I thought she did an excellent job. Mm. I mean, let's talk about what, what we find in the diaries. We don't, as you say, we don't really know why she started them. Do you think they were for herself or with an eye on posterity or to feed into her work or a bit of all of those or none of them? What do you think? All of them and more. Um, certainly she had an eye on posterity. She knew that her diary might be published. She loved reading others published diaries. She read so many of them that three books have been written, a trilogy by Barbara Lounsbury, specifically on the diaries that Wolf read as she was keeping her own diary. So Wolf was fascinated with others' diaries and was sort of seeing herself contributing to that canon of great diaries. So certainly she has an eye on posterity. I think her biggest audience is herself, but a projected future self. She often refers to old Virginia, and is, you know, she needs a sense of an audience, but the audience can be herself in some sort of, you know, projected superego. Um, and so she's often saying, well, what, what would interest old Virginia? Should I record this? Should I record that? She has a sense that old Virginia will want to mine these diaries for a memoir, but in practice, current Virginia is doing that all the time, mining the diaries for whichever work she's working on. Um, and even through her life, you you know, reading the diaries, you you hear passages, you think, isn't that familiar? Oh, 
actually she used that into the lighthouse or oh she used that in her last essay Anon oh so you she clearly is rereading her diaries throughout her life and drawing on them that's very moving is future Virginia when she's old looking back and reading them is it that's right yes so which obviously never happened but though as you say current Virginia was was doing that work the whole time anyway right one of the things that I found so intriguing in a piece full of intrigue was that her diaries did take separate paths at one point. She eventually kind of kept two sets of diaries, one that was more expansive and the other was more detailed and specific. Um, and that's largely to do with her cataloguing what she sees around her every day and particularly in the natural world, isn't it? And I wondered if that in any way kind of gave a sense of her trying to find different outlets for different parts of her mind, trying to compartmentalise in a way that would make them feel contained on the page, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's right. If you sit down with volume one and you just start reading, you're going to come up short on page 44. I'm checking. Um, the diary just stops. So you're on page 44 and there it is. It just stops. You think, wait, what happens? And then it skips two years. And the diary starts up again, and it sounds totally different. You get really previously, you know, you sit down to read, you open it up, and it's conversational and long and descriptive and chatty. And then, okay, it stops page 44. Then it skips two years. And then on page 48, you start reading again, and we get these really short entries that are purely observing, observing nature, there is no first person. Sentences start with a verb. Saw this. Went out to Lewis. Heard blah, blah, blah. The eye has been lopped off. And the content is very much um, natural observation. And we get a note explaining that Wolf had a serious breakdown for these two years uh, off and on. So you think, well, this is, this is clearly a, a convalescent, you know, trying to pick up the pen again. But in fact, she had been writing a tremendous amount. Letters, her experimental short story, The Mark on the Wall, um, part of her second novel. So I don't think it's only that. I think it's also, as you as you just said, that it's an experiment. It's a new experiment. Let's try this new approach to a diary, natural history notes. Let's see what happens. But then she ends up doing the other sort again, doesn't she? Right. Kind of alongside. Yes, yes, that was right. That was the other part of your question. So she keeps this natural history diary for a while when she's in her country house. And then when she goes to when she goes to her London house, she leaves the natural history diary behind in the country house. And back in London, she resumes what what the diary initially sounded like, you know, expansive, chatty, lively, long uh, entries full of metaphor, full of the first person, recording conversations, ideas, writing projects. It's very thick and dense and, and vivacious. And then when she returns to the country house, she keeps both diaries at the same time. And what is special about this new edition by Granta is that we can compare the two simultaneous diaries. Anne Olivier Bell had omitted the overlap in her edition and had published um, the overlapping diaries separately in um, a periodical called the Charleston Magazine which is now pretty hard to access. So what's terrific about this edition is that you can compare, you can flip back and forth to compare the, the simultaneous diaries and see, well, what, 
you know, what did she use the one diary for and what the other? Mm. And is there a trajectory? I mean, finally, the natural history diary just stops. I think she gets bored with it. The mm. other diary, you know, subsumes it. Mm -hmm. But it's so it's so brilliant, isn't it? The way that she writes about it. I mean, one of my favorite lines that I mean, you quote so many wonderful lines, many of which could be you know, titles for a memoir like Embarrassing at Breakfast or something like that, uh, which is <laughs> what she says. She says about Vita Sackville West after she's been to stay. Embarrassing at breakfast. Aren't um, we all? But then, exactly. Then there are these kind of marvellous moments when she she's she's looking at the natural, you know, she's she's lying on the side of a hollow, I think you quote, uh, waiting for Leonard to come and pick mushrooms with her. And she sees a hare and she thinks, this is earth life. And it's just it's such a kind of four words that make you understand why she could, what it meant to her. Uh, and then she goes on to say she thinks of herself as an evolved kind of hare, as if a moon visitor saw me. I mean, they are so beautifully written and so suggestive. Yeah. Yeah, she has this tremendous empathy and imaginative generosity, which in this passage extends, you know, to alien life forms. You know, what would it be to be in the mind of a of a moon man, you know, moon woman? And so it's this passage is, as you say, it's very beautiful. It's also funny. And it also attests to this to an empathy she extends you know more typically to other people but but throughout the diary we have that she gives us she's always trying to understand from other people's perspective and so she'll record people's stories that they tell her at great length sometimes perfect strangers or record what people ate for breakfast speaking of embarrassing at breakfast she's always very interested in breakfast you know she's trying to understand what is this person's point of view what is that person's point of view and then in this passage it, it reaches this sort of apogee a moon visitor's perception. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. There is a claim. So, so this edition is, is very valuable because you can um, can look at both of those diaries alongside. Am I right that you're not quite convinced by the claim that they're completely unexpurgated? Oh, there are two. <laughs> There's a question. I, I want to say, I want to say this diary is an extraordinary public good. We should all be tremendously grateful that it's back in print. It is yeah. all to the I don't like the word unexpurgated, which um, is sensational. And Wolf's Life has often been regarded as sensational. And so I don't think that does her or her work uh, or us, her readers, uh, a service. It's also the case that not everything that uh, Anne Olivia Bell omitted has been reinstated. She omitted very little. So she omitted initially the overlapping Country House Diary, which she then published later on. And she omitted really a handful of passages concentrated in the last volume that are particularly cutting, written of people whom Anne Olivier Bell was close to and was trying to protect. And so as well as certain passages concerning sexual, uh, sexual pursuits and flirtations. So... I am grateful to have as much as possible what Wolf wrote. And so I appreciate that certain passages have been reinstated, but not quite everything has. And I feel um, kind of crummy, you know, saying, well, I, I really wish I knew the name of, you know, the three people who were in bed together in that passage. I, I really don't care. I really think it's fine to be discreet about certain things. And so I... I don't want to be someone saying, well, it should be, you know, 
published absolutely, absolutely in full um, or the names of certain men who, who were at the male baths. Mm. It's okay, they can be left out, but mm. then the claim of unexpurgated is not quite true. I see what you mean. So, I mean, it's fine to be discreet, but then don't say, don't say unexpurgated as though there are all sorts of salacious things in there. Yeah, and it and the word makes one such as myself want to go through and see what what has been reinstated, what had been left out, and what has been reinstated, and it doesn't feel good. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel good yeah. morally, aesthetically, to be looking for um, names to be reinstated in in passages about se sexual adventures. It just that's mm. not what Wolf's Diary is. That's that's not the use of it. <laughs> that's you no. Know, no, no, sure. Okay, so wonderful thing, and we should just ignore the unexpurgated. Forget about that. Exactly. There you go. It's yeah. it's advertising. Chuck that out the window. And... and everyone should buy this and read it and be grateful <laughs> to all the editors. Finally, as Alex says, there is wonderful stuff in there. She says she writes in it. You quote her as saying that that she writes in the diary when she's in the dumps and the dismals, which yeah. is her her phrase for it. But there are moments of just, I've just said, wonderful kind of insight and empathy and beauty. I wondered if you might read us um, the quote that you give at the end that she says about, about being hypnotized by the world. Yeah, this is on her, her father's birthday in 1928. And she writes, so the days pass. And I ask myself sometimes whether one is not hypnotized as a child by a silver globe, by life. I should like to take the globe in my hands and feel it quietly, round, smooth, heavy. And so hold it day after day. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Emily, for talking us through those wonderful histories and diaries and through the whole process. Thank you so much. Oh, it has, it has been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. have time for this week our thanks go to paul lynch emily copley and toby lishnig and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye <laughs>